My peeps, it's Tuesday. It ain't Monday. Yesterday was Monday. You had a howls, as they say. Hope you enjoyed it. It is September, the first market call of September. The letter for September, since this is a Futures Day, the letter U, as we reach October, I will tell you that it's the letter V, but I'll explain to you why it's not an actual V. Uh, It's more of an inverted V, but that's not neither here nor there, Danny Moses, because this is market call. Now, you always are looking. You say, wait a second. That's a very good-looking man. That's not Dan Nathan. You're correct. That's Danny Moses. I'm Swizz. That's Danny Moses. Dan Nathan is at the Code Conference in California, hobnobbing with people a lot brighter than I, which is not saying that much. Today's market call is brought to you by CME Group, Danny, where risk meets opportunity. And I will tell you, sir, because I know you love this stuff. I know you looked at charts and looked at things over the weekend and tried to figure out what's been taking place and what's going to take place. But I think things are playing out very much the way you anticipated almost a year or so ago. How are you, by the way? Good. It feels like Groundhog Day. You sure it's the letter U for the Futures Month for September? Because this is starting to feel the same every day we walk in to see this market. It really feels the same. So, yeah. Well, what's interesting, I agree with you, you know, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure. The one thing that I find fascinating, we obviously had that huge rally from the middle of June, uh, we rallied all the way up. We, we're coming back now. But the VIX really hasn't done a whole hell of a lot of anything. It's probably a different conversation. But what has happened, Danny, is the data seems to be mixed. And as they say on you match game fans, slide it, Earl, because there was an interesting headline that I saw today. U.S. Treasury yields rise sharply following strong economic data. I don't know what they're looking at. I mean, you could say strong data all you want. I think yields are moving higher for a different reason. But, okay, one data point notwithstanding, I hear what they're saying. But I think you think and I think yields are moving higher for much different reasons. Yeah, I think those indicators, right, so that's backwards looking to a degree. All what the Fed is doing is you know, starting to catch up. There's a lag effect starting to happen. But to me, higher yields, certainly on the 10-year yields, will be get slowing down the economy, it will start to slow down the economy. Um, and you, we've seen this before. We're going to, as we approach three and a half percent on the 10 year and maybe even close to 4%, we saw what happened the last time that that occurred. But I also think, and we talked about this on the tape podcast, global rates. I mean, look what's going on on the British markets, on the mm-hmm. 10 on in Germany. And that's a whole different situation there, what's going on in their economy. That's truly, truly stagflation that's occurring there already. Those are scary things that are happening. And all you're doing is kind of reverting. We're now, I think, 2013 levels approaching over there in Europe. I think where rates are going and we're not far behind if we keep shooting higher. So I will tell you that we will start to have declining economic indicators if rates stay at these levels um, as things will undoubtedly slow. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in high yield and corporate debt markets, um, but they're starting to feel the impact there. And again, that's a lag effect of what's going to be on the come, I believe. So Yeah, let's do a full screen of this. T. This is TU1, so September obviously being the U. And this speaks to potentially a pretty significant breakout of levels that we haven't seen in a while. And now, again, you mentioned Europe because I think it's it's really important to look at. People say, well, what's the big deal in Europe? As I've mentioned a number of times, Dan, and you can speak to this. Yeah, individually, the countries are not a big deal. But collectively, the Eurozone would be the largest economy in the world by GDP, with some 450 or so million people. And that, to me, is pretty significant. So when you look at it in aggregate, this is a big deal. And the central bankers there have to figure out, okay, we're going to raise rates to try to combat inflation, which is out of control. 
But understanding that raising rates is going to crush an economy that's already being crushed. They don't have a lot of easy decisions there. And I think it's just a window as to what we're looking at potentially here, not as draconian, but I mean, in some ways, we're looking at the same thing here. And, you know, I think it's all kind of where you come from in terms of where rates have been where they're, and where they're going. But what's really interesting and people need to go back and look is rates were so artificially low because what global banks were doing for so long, this is just kind of normalization of rates. It feels horrible in the direction is obviously bad and it's getting steep here. But when you think about rates, never should have been at 50 basis points, 1%, one and a quarter percent. They're all suppressed by global central banks. So just the central banks taking their foot off of the gas, right, without printing money and doing quantitative easing, all the things that they were doing. This is what a normal kind of rate environment looks like. And I think settling in to what that might be is a, a, a yeah. very painful process. So normalization is one thing, but getting there is going to be anything but normal. And that's something that you've pointed out and I've pointed out as well. The, the road to get where we are now has been, in a word, volatile and the bond market volatility that more and more people seem to be coming to grips with has been historic in a word. Let's take a look at the CME FedWatch tool because that's something that we need to do here. Look, I think there's still a lot of people that hold out hope that sometime next year we're going to be talking about the Fed cutting rates instead of raising rates, and maybe that'll be the case. I don't know. I know you think some weird things can happen in the winter of this year, but right now you can see the predictiveness of this CME FedWatch tool, and I think people are wrapping their heads around the fact that this Fed ain't messing around anymore. No, and they had to gain some type of credibility or whatever shred of credibility that they have. They have it right now and they need to keep moving forward. So we have a Fed meeting in a couple of weeks here. You know, like you said, it's two thirds chance of 75 basis points. It's a third chance of 50 basis points. Either way, if it's something outside of those two things, if it's either 100 basis points, which I don't think there's a chance or zero, probably not a big chance anywhere if they want to maintain any type of credibility. The question for me is, what will make the Fed change course? What will make those Fed futures change to either have lower? Because I don't think you can get much more hawkish, in my opinion, than what we're already seeing in those futures. But if they did drop, why is it dropping? And to me, it's going to be because you're going to start to see, I know the stuff we're going to talk about here in a minute, stuff we're going on in high yield, the real driver of, of the economy, right? Has been, it's been a debt-fueled economy for years, and the Fed's had its back, and it doesn't have it any longer. So whether that's the Fed intention here to send that message, it's actually starting to work. And I think that's why we see every day wake up, the market kind of wants to rally. And then the realization, I think, sits in of can this market really perform in a higher rate environment? And I think every day that goes by, we're going to start to see the answer is no or not as good as we think it might. So Yeah, I think Friday's action, we're going to look at the S&P in a second, but Friday's action, I think, speaks to exactly that. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, right, the Fed has gotten, again, just my opinion, I think they've gotten really lucky since November in so much as credit has not been a concern. It's on nobody's radar screen. And again, we're going to talk about that in a second. So I don't want to jump the gun here, but I'll just play it out with you quickly before we talk about Bill Ackman. Let's just say credit becomes a CERN concern and they're forced to do something they probably don't want to do. That market might take a collective sigh of relief on the back of that, but guess what happens then? This inflation um, genie, which is out of the bottle, continues to only grow. So They've really positioned themselves at a point where they better hope credit doesn't become a problem and they better hope the economy doesn't completely fall out of bed in order to do what they need to do. And people seem to think they can thread this needle, Danny. I just don't see any way possible, given not only what's going on here, but to our earlier point, what's going on in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, I would say this is the equivalent of what we're seeing now, as bad as the market feels. This is the soft landing experiment right now. The market is still trading like we have a soft landing Goldman Sachs, I know, put out a report this morning that they're seeing 
I guess green shoots is what I would call them if you believe there's actually going to be a soft landing out there. But I want to go back to something very important that we touched on a second ago. You have publicly traded equities, which have publicly traded debt on them. Talk about mismatch. There are several um, companies out there with bonds trading sub 90 cents where the equities still are trading. I think it is. So I want to I want to slow you down for a second. So you mentioned sub 90. And for you, that's sort of the, the, the Mendoza line. That's a line of demarcation. When you say when you see things south of 90, that the alarm bells go off for you. And not only are things south of 90. I mean, you have things that are significantly lower than that. But please continue, because this is really important. Yeah, listen, you can have bonds trade below 90 cents because coupons were issued. They were so low at the time that you know that the, it doesn't take genius to figure out that when they issue new paper, it's going to be at a much higher rate. So you'll have that arbitrage there. But there also is the trend in those bonds and why they're going that way. So it's not just higher rates that make all the bonds trade below par. I think it's company specific to a degree. And again, I think this will be you know, bond picking environment. We talk about stock picking environment. I think the bond picking environment will be just as exciting. And I say exciting because there's opportunity here. Uh, it doesn't mean everything's a short and it doesn't mean everything's a long, but I think there's opportunities in there. And I think this is the lost art. I don't think there's a lot of analysts, the same way that analysts weren't hired to look at energy anymore two or three years ago. There's no eyes on it. There's a few people. I think the same thing has been going on in high yield. It hasn't mattered. And as a matter of fact, one thing I just went back and looked at today, I wanted to make sure the Fed had sold all of their positions in the ETFs, which they had bought during COVID. And they had, by the way, they ended, they got out of them in September 2021. And that last push into these kind of zombie companies and these fallen angels, if you will, was kind of the last, you know, last in, first out type thing of, of what's happened. And now you have a lot of people that own fixed income ETFs, and I'm not sure that they know what they own. And I know we're going to get into that here, Guy, in a bit, but I think that's a crucial thing to watch. And you've been talking about for a long time, the HYG, the LQD, watching these as a proxy for the markets. And I think that's something really important to watch. Yeah, we're going to look at that. But, you know, it's interesting that you meant it's all very interesting. But I think one of the either intended consequences or unintended, and quite frankly, it doesn't matter because this is where we are. But price discovery went away when the Fed was out there basically buying everything that they get their hands on. And that sounds glib. It's not intended to be. It happens to be the truth. So you mentioned that it's a lost art. I, I would submit it's a lost art, one, because I think people have gotten lazy, two, because there was no price discovery. So there was no art to be had because things were artificially inflated. So as much as you'd like to say the bonds were going to be telling a story over the last few years, they couldn't tell you a story because they weren't allowed to open the book, Danny. Correct. And I think just because you see the either direction of an equity prices or bond prices move, don't overthink it. Don't think of a stock goes from 50 to 35. What's wrong with the company? It's just reevaluating, re-underwriting at this moment. The same thing on bond prices, right? The same thing when you have to issue new paper. And the irony of that or is how those things are fixed together is that if you have to issue bonds at lower prices or higher yields, you are going to affect the equity value of your company. And I think right now, it pays to be in quality. It pays to be in companies that don't need to access the debt markets that have tremendous free cash flow, right? I think that is where you're going to see a premium in the equity markets. And that's why you see quality in some of these names trade at historical premiums to the long-term valuation of some of these companies that are out there that are generating lots of cash. And to me, that's kind of where we're headed. You can keep the S&P up at a certain level, or maybe the S&P drops at 3,500. You could have a group of quality companies basically be flat or only slightly down outperforming I think that's where we're headed because I, I think there's few and far between the amount of quality companies that people own right now. They're going to have to adjust and find those. 
Bill Ackman, Bill Ackman was on CNBC today, and you know there was obviously the headline: what he looks for uh, to when when the buy signal for stocks will come. And it's interesting. I mean, I think look, he's a very thoughtful person. He's done extraordinarily well. I'm not a huge fan, but it doesn't matter. I think it's track record and the aggregate uh, speaks for itself. And he's talking about all these things about what have the Fed and see inflation come off. But that's his point about when you see a buy opportunity. I'm interested in what you're looking for. You know, I tell you, I'll tell you the things that I look for. I look for capitulation in the form of volume. And by the way, that happens on both sides. It happens on the upside when we see stocks explode to all new highs on three, four times normal volume. Typically, that's a short covering situation or maybe some news is up. But you see it on the downside as well. And I would submit um, the only panic, Danny, I've seen over the last few months has been to the upside, even on big downdraft days. The downdraft days have felt pretty orderly. The panic has been on the upside because people feel like they're about to miss something. I haven't seen the panic on the downside. What do you typically look for as we look at this S&P chart in terms of giving you a signal? I don't want to say all clear because it's never all clear, but things are a little more interesting on the long side. Um, listen, we're nowhere near capitulation. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see some large funds probably shut down. We're going to see some large losses kind of come out of some of these commodities and all this volatility that's been going on, not, not just in energy prices, but in rates in general equities. And so I don't think we're near there yet. And to me, just to focus on Ackman's point that he made, what would make, I'll say this again, what would make the Fed kind of change course rather quickly? I don't think it's an S&P at 3,600 or 3,500 mm-hmm. or 3,400. I think it's a lot lower than that. But again, we've talked about this before, Kind of, kind of the healthiness of the market. Can the market remain healthy? To me, with rates moving up right now, 10-year yields, the market is actually kind of holding in better because I think it wants to believe that this soft landing. Now, if the 10-year yields, we woke up today and they were at 2.3% instead of 3.3%, I would tell you the S&P would be a lot lower because that would be telling me that people have capitulated that we're going to be in lower growth for longer, right? And that doesn't mean that you can't own certain stocks. But to me, we're kind of between... we're. People are, I mean, as bad as this market has felt for the last few weeks since the, I guess the high print in mid-August and where we've dropped off 10, 10% or so, mm-hmm. um, we, this market's actually held up fairly well relative to me where rates are going. And so the crisis is going on internationally, the geopolitical risks, they're not getting priced in, guy. They're just not. And so our, our earnings numbers, I think, for 2022 are starting to come down. I think they're going to reset in 2023. And I'm expecting as we get into the fourth quarter of, of this year and into the first quarter of 23, kind of a reset. And maybe we can kind of see, obviously, the end of the rate site, rate uh, hike cycle. I think we will see it clearly by then. But then what does it look like? And where have earnings gone? And what multiple? We'll get into that six months from now. But what multiple do you apply to the, to the low number in terms of what earnings might be in 2023? So a lot of this is in real time. And this time of year, seasonally, tends to be very volatile. People want to protect their gains. Hedge funds are actually outperforming now, I think, for the first time in a long time in general. They want to protect those from a marketing perspective. So I think as far as gross, when we talk about gross in the market, when you add up your longs and your shorts as a hedge fund, historically can be as high as two to one in terms of leverage, have dropped down to a level now where people are just kind of protecting. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of volatility here in the next uh, four to six weeks. You know, I think it's interesting. You said that, you know, the, the S&P trading down to a certain level is not going to trigger this Fed to reverse course. I happen to agree with that. I don't think that their focus right now is on the S&P. I think there's a lot of runway to the downside that they would allow before they would consider changing course 
Um, that's different than historically, well, historically over the last 15 or 20 years, where I think they've been laser focused on the market. What I will say, though, if things start to deteriorate in other places and the, the consequences, the S&P trades lower, that's when I think they would potentially think about it. But I don't think we're close to that at all yet. The other thing we should look at quickly, and, and just to amplify your answer, you know, people say, what's the right multiple in this environment? Well, okay, Raise, rising rates, check. Slowing growth, check. Um, Europe in a really bad situation, check. China continues to be on lockdown, check. Uh, you tell me what the right multiple is in that environment. Now, historically, the market trades around 17 times-ish. I mean, that sort of seems to be the number people agree upon. Who's to say it can't overshoot to the downside? I mean, we spent years above 22. Uh, and I, again, I think things happen on the downside a lot faster. But who's to say we couldn't trade down to a 15 multiple on potentially 200 $210 worth of earnings? And you can start doing that math, Danny. Think about this, just to back up one second. So we've had flash crashes in equities. We've had flash crashes in, in the bond market. We had flash crash in oil when it went to negative $39, right? Everyone kind of remembers that. We have yet to really test again the plumbing. I think there will be something that will happen. I'm not going to trade that. I'm not going to try to predict that. But there's so much volatility right now. Listen to what oil does. I mean, it trades in 5 to $10 increments, mm -hmm. right? Where bonds go. That's a test. That's a whole nother conversation. But from a confidence factor going into the markets, I think that will unravel as well to a degree. You're going to have things being tested. And whether that makes the Fed blink because there's no accurate pricing mechanism or volatility escalates so much, they feel like they have to calm the markets. Maybe it's something like that that occurs that you know calms the market down. But we've seen fits and starts and bits and pieces for the last five to seven years of our plumbing being tested in the financial markets. And the more that the big banks pull back, the more that they have these risk-weighted asset tests that they have to, the more these stress tests occur, the less involved they're going to be and the less willing they're going to be to step in right now to kind of get rid of that volatility. So I think that's also, Guy, just a very underappreciated aspect of what's going on in this market as well. Let's take a look at small caps as measured in futures through the CME future. I mean, this is interesting because, again, I, I would submit most economically sensitive names. Um, the trajectory lower from November makes sense. Here's my uh, explanation as to why the small caps rallied as much as they did into, to your point, mid-August. I think there were a lot of people out there that misinterpreted what they heard. And they heard in the middle of June, towards the end of June, somehow this Fed was going to pivot, pause, whatever word you want to use. And that's why I think the broader market obviously got on its horse. And the same reasons, that's why the small caps got on their horse. But the environment that we find ourselves in, again, my opinion, does not particularly augur well for these names in particular. So it's done everything it needed to do. If you look, we traded right up to the moving average. We failed. We're now through the 50-day moving average. It stands to reason, in my opinion, that we test the levels we saw in mid-June. What are your thoughts here? Yes. And I'll say two words that kind of sum up. Credit spreads, yes. kind of what those trade with. And if you're the smaller cap names, obviously you're dependent on capital markets to a degree, financing to a degree, it gets exacerbated for those companies. So that really, if you were to just put up a chart of credit spreads, right, it would be inverted, obviously probably to that. So it's all I really need to see. But yeah, and listen, there's there's not a lot of fund managers. So you have a feast or famine kind of in the hedge fund world. You have these 10, 20, $30 billion macro funds. They can't really get involved in individual stocks in the small and mid-cap range, it's much harder. They're forced to use the S&P futures to balance out their book. They're forced to own some large companies to, to express a trade, right? So I think this all kind of fits into the thesis. And 
again, we talked about on the tape, it's a jigsaw puzzle that's starting to come together. The pieces, you can start to see the picture, right, uh, of Yuri, whoever, <laughs> whatever picture you want to put together, no way out. That would be but Kevin Costner, by yeah. the way, for you folks out there, yeah, no way out. Exactly. The great so, Sean Young, by the way, as we mentioned, she had a great, probably five-year run. Um, listen, I thought No Way Out was great, but again, she was in the movie Stripes too, as you recall. Yeah, this this market though, just to, I didn't mean to even bring that together, but it is No Way Out. It kind of feels like we're kind of trapped here. So I think the more inputs that we get and the realization starts to come in about we're in a normalized environment where the Fed doesn't have your back, where there's no QE. And again, Guy, I'll say it again, People are underappreciating the situation in Europe right now with what's going on with their energy situation and where rates are. It's an impossible situation that they're in. And I'm telling you, we need to pull back from you know, what we're looking at here as the US. I'm speaking, you know, specifically from for you know the investor community, nothing else. It's horrible what's going on. But to focus on investments for a second, it's as you mentioned before, it's a massive part of the global economy and it's in true disarray right now. And I just don't think it's being appreciated. Not at all. And again, it's because you know, if it's not affecting us here, we completely that's what we do. We completely just sort of brush by it and it's not on our radar screen until it is. You mentioned trapped, and I'll say, Danny, that good will conquer evil and the truth will set us free. And that comes in the form of the next slide. And that's all about credit and high yield and what's going on. And guess what? Loan defaults are starting to worry Wall Street investors. Oh, thank you, Wall Street Journal. I mean, I wonder where we've heard that before, because that's something you've been harping on for quite some time. Yeah, listen, it's just math and it's just a trend that we're in. I, I don't think anyone's shocked that they had one way to go, right, which was wider or lower if you want to talk about uh, bonds. And there's a lot of deals that still need to be funded by private equity firms, which Wall Street, as we call it, can be hung on some of these deals. So you're starting to see a repricing of some of those deals. People always ask, why are the banks trading lower? Well, this is one of the reasons, right? This will slow down their business dramatically if, if yields go out like this, because deals that looked attractive, right, on paper, all of a sudden aren't when you just change a little number and you extrapolate that into the future. Earnings change, cash flows change, everything changes. And so this is the trend that we're going to see. And this is going to be in the news every day for the next you know, six months, and certainly while the Fed is still going. And the lag impact of what the Fed is doing and the widening credit spreads, this is exactly where it goes. So companies that need funding, there's a reason SoftBank is writing down a lot of these deals, right? Because this is exactly what's happening to them. So unfortunately, we're at the beginning part for that. And kids ask me sometimes when they're coming out of college and they get put into a bank and they're in some type of training program, hey, where should I go? All I've been saying for the last year is credit. Go into the credit department. I guarantee that they're one, they're shorthanded. It's a lost art and it's going to be the trend now. I know, Guy, you worked at Drexel you know, for years, maybe not in that department specifically, but you were around it. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a great opportunity, I think, on the long side, actually, long and short side for high yield. But again, it's a lost art and people, are, people maybe don't pay enough attention to a headline like that, Guy, because it doesn't impact them today in the stock market. They're going to start to. And we have two charts that illustrate this exactly. And this is something we've been talking about on Market Call and on On The Tape. The first one is the HYG short term. And so you see where we traded down to in June. We had that subsequent bounce. And now we're approaching the levels we last saw, obviously, a few months ago. Um, that speaks to the here and now. But I wanted to sort of spread this out a little bit and just to show folks HYG is something historically doesn't really do anything until it does, Danny. And you can speak to each one of those downdrafts and what happened. Obviously, 08 and 09, we know what happened. Uh, the middle of this, this, this decade, 2015, 
I think that was right around, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the China devalue of the yuan in August of 2015. Obviously, we know what happened in 2020, and here we are now. So these downdrafts have been the precursor, again, my opinion, to something pretty nefar- pretty nasty in the equity market. Are we on the precipice of something here, or am I making too much out of it? No, I think you are, and I think I think as an investor and brokers in general, everyone got a little bit lazy to the point you made earlier. I can just own a fixed income ETF, and now I have a yield of four to six percent. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to look at it. I'm surprised that it's taken this long. So what happens normally is you own your portfolio, you look at it monthly, or some people look at it daily. But a, a thing like this, you don't really want to worry about. And all of a sudden, you have fifty, hundred thousand dollars in one of these fixed income ETFs, and all of a sudden, it's down to eighty-eight thousand dollars. You're like, wait a second. What I thought happened? this was, quote, safe. What happened here? And then when you start to peel it back, it can become self-fulfilling. And I think this goes back to inflows versus outflows. It's that simple, right? It's just math. And so outflows can beget outflows because that forces the, the pricing, obviously, to deteriorate on some of the underlying bonds. And what you're going to see is, and what we've seen a few times, but kind of head fakes of the last five to seven years, we've gotten to this point, as you can see on the chart from various times, and it hasn't fulfilled its way down. Well, the difference in this chart and everything else is the Fed had your back in every one of those That's right. other charts, and now they don't. And so what you're seeing is take the time, even if you're not involved in these things, to look at the HYG and the LQD and all the JNK and all this other crap and start to look at the underlying components of it. You'll see some energy companies in there which have traded better in terms of high yield, telecom, et cetera. And then you're going to start to see some companies which are, you know, they, they're orphans, so to speak, in the high yield community. And so if there are redemptions that come in, into these products, which they will, what are they going to sell to meet those redemptions? They're going to have to sell the good stuff because there's no market for the bad stuff. We just went. And so to me, that's something to pay attention to. And it has a massive impact. And again, I blame the SEC too and everybody else for letting this go on so long and, you know, go, go on and on and not really calling it out because it hasn't mattered. Now it matters. And so, passive inv- yeah, listen, passive is great when everything's going higher. It's typically when it's at its zenith, right? Money flows in, markets go higher, nobody cares. My concern all along has been when passive becomes active, it ain't going to be active on the way up. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm not suggesting we're there or we're on the precipice, but it's just something to keep in mind. And Danny nor I are telling you to trade HYG or LQD. Or, that's not our point, but you should absolutely have it up on your screen to sort of get in an understanding of what the market's looking at. To me, there is an important an indicator as the volatility index is, and it's just something to have up there. Energy, Danny, this is one that's it's befuddled. I thought I really had this figured out, um, and for a long time I was looking like a genius. Well, recently it hasn't really worked out that way. Now we're seeing that energy trading stressed by margin calls of $1.5 trillion with a T. I mean, these are significant numbers. I mean, and this is, again, this is going on right in front of our faces. And now people are starting to take notice. This is what I'm talking about. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the price of the energy underlying. No. It has to do with the ability for the utilities and industrials to be able to deal with this in the markets. And so you saw Finland um, come in with a huge uh, bailout this morning. Obviously, I think they came in with Sweden. I think I'm not I'm not sure exactly came in with a bailout, um, huge number. Germany's already talking about it. And I think the rationing, this is where I think it's being underappreciated, that has to occur from all these large corporations that manufacture in Europe. They're going to be rolling blackouts going on. We think it's bad in California during a heat wave at various times. I mean, mark that times five or 10 of what may be occurring here, but government bailouts are now occurring in advance of what they know is coming, which is the inability of these, of these 
utilities to make good with the promise on the Ford contracts. They're going to buy this power. Putin is now saying basically he's not going to ship anything through Nord Stream 1 at this mm-hmm. point, which effectively holds the entire continent hostage to this. So like I said before, this they're, they're doing this in anticipation of that occurring, which is happening now. But again, something to pay attention to. And I really hope it doesn't get to the point that it seems like it's going to in the riots in the street and things like that. I really hope it doesn't come to that. But again, pull your head out of the sand here and pay, pay really pay attention to what's happening across the globe. Well, I mean, you know, the chess match suggests that, you know, if that is in fact the case, if Europe is is threatened by this and faces this, there's going to be a push to say, you know what, give the man what he wants in the form of Ukraine. And that's the chip, right? And that could sort of assuage some of the concerns. All right, we'll acquiesce. You get Ukraine, turn the freaking gas back on. And then what's his next step? I mean, if you really want to play this out, you could sort of see it going that way. It's not for this conversation. Let's put up a TI chart real quick. Obviously, crude futures, very interesting. And we find ourselves huge support level here. Again, I think you know what I believe. You know, I think higher, but the price actions suggest anything. But I will tell you, though, that I think OPEC has basically told folks that we don't want the price to go much lower from here and we'll do what's necessary to keep it here or make it go higher. I think that's something to keep in mind. I think the sell-off in crude, Danny, has been on the notion that the globe is slowing down, which is true. The problem with that argument or thesis is demand hasn't slowed down yet. And I don't think the market's taking that into consideration. We'll see. Thoughts? Yeah, we're seeing demand slow in China. Obviously, they have their own issues. You're forecasting demand destruction in Europe from what I just went over about rationing. You'll have to obviously use less power in general. So it's a little bit of that. And I think, you know, the, the, the markets that have been the most accurate have been everything but the equity markets, kind of portending what's going to happen, both with rates potentially and now with energy and commodities. And so we are at an inflection point. It doesn't take a genius to see that just looking at, at that chart here. I think you can still own energy stocks, Guy, if that's kind of where we're going, considering where they still trade. If oil drops below 70 or $65, you can bet that it was a demand destruction issue that mm-hmm. it actually did that for sure. But again, I still think it's an under-owned industry as far as the, as the sector goes you know, for stocks. But again, that's your biggest input on how you can value these companies. And so that just adds another layer of volatility to people where they're going to put their money. And so- that chart doesn't look good. I'll be honest. I think it's good trade down to seventy-five or eighty dollars. Yeah. I don't see it going much lower than that with all the geopolitical risk that's kind of out there. That I think it's underappreciated. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. The dollars. It's interesting. Everything sort of takes its cues from the dollar, and the move in the dollar over the last predictable to a certain point has been nothing short of astonishing. I mean, we're talking about the dollar. We have levels we haven't seen in decades in, in terms of the crosses with some currency. And listen. For the, for the consumer here in the United States, to a certain extent, that offsets, to a certain extent, offsets inflation problems, okay? Obviously, you have more buying power when the dollar's higher. But I will tell you, in terms of global economies, the, the huge impact it has on emerging markets and certain things is devastating a stronger dollar. And it shows no sign of slowing down, Danny. Yeah, I was just going to say the emerging markets really um, get the brunt of that right there. And most of the most of the financial crises that you see over the course of time started or either were read into by something happening in a currency like this, in a currency trade. And this is a runaway trade here with the dollar, and it's not good. And you think about Europe's ability uh, to buy our goods from us, given what's going on, and then the dollar doing that, it makes it that much harder, obviously. And then that has a direct impact, obviously, on oil prices, gold prices, and so forth. So 
That is everything right there, Guy. Again, it's another thing that I think that's where your geopolitical kind of risk is hiding a little bit there, people hiding basically in the dollar here. And maybe when the Fed does take their foot off the pedal, it starts to drop a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think that may be a false signal to the markets um, in terms of to go buy the markets because the dollar is just dropping off. That level is still very high on an absolute basis, right? So I can't see exactly where that is, but we're over 108, I believe, correct? Um, 110, so, I think we got to. It's amazing. Yeah. The, you just mentioned gold. Let's take a look at it because you and I share similar beliefs here. And obviously, my dogma's getting in the way, but this can't get out of its own way. And again, people say, wait, we're in this the most inflationary environment we've been in almost 50 years. What's the problem with gold? The problem is, in my opinion, the Fed is trying to combat that. So yes, we're in an inflationary environment. If it was unchecked by the Fed, gold would be significantly higher. The fact that they're trying to combat it is what's keeping a lid on things. But to me, this is one of those pressure cookers. It's only a matter of time before the top blows off. Am I out of my mind? No, maybe we shouldn't be on together because I agree with everything that you're saying. There's no, there's no counterpoint here. So listen, that's one of the, as bad as that chart looks, it's probably one of the best performing assets in the market this year, right? If, if not one of, the, one of the top ones. And so, yeah, I have no problem owning it. Could drop a little bit more, but you're right. I mean, it's a powder keg um, and I think it will work. And so you're right. It didn't work in this inflationary environment or it has not yet. But guess where it's going to work? It's going to work when the Fed does take their foot off the pedal or, God forbid, a lot of this geopolitical stuff that's happening really gets worse. I mean, gold only has one direction to go, and that's higher. And I still think it's very underowned uh, by the investment community. And I think it could be one of the, the next big places to kind of make it move higher. So, no, I'm, I'm buying on the dips here. Uh, I know it doesn't act great. Uh, but I think for patient investors, I think it's a great place to hide right now, for sure. You know, you're a great person to do market call with. I love the fact that you are Johnny on the spot. You jump in like this Happy when Dan Nathan goes. He's, Dan's out there with Kara Swisher rubbing elbows with all the elites as I sit here in rainy Morristown, New Jersey, uh, preparing to go to New York City for CNBC's Fast Money, 5 p.m. Each night, Danny is familiar with that show. He's on it often. He does a great job. I want to thank Danny Moses because not only are you brilliant, you're extraordinarily handsome. Love you to death, as you know. I want to thank our sponsor, CME Group, Danny, where risk meets opportunity. We're powered by Open Exchange. If you enjoyed the show, like us. Send us a note like you do. Send Amanda Diaz an email. She loves reading it. Dan and I will be back tomorrow, which is Wednesday, with Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting and Tom Sosnoff of Tasty Trade. As I like to say now for my outros, I'm 5,000. Guy, thank you.